From Nevada Public Radio, I'm Joe Shaneman. It's State of Nevada. The takedown of a black student near Durango High School by a school cop uh, just a couple weeks ago has renewed discussions about safety in our schools. But this time, some outraged parents are talking about the safety of their children from police. After that incident, parents have called for reforms, for the officer to be fired, and for a review of school police policies. At the same time, nobody forgets what happened to a high school teacher about a year ago. She was attacked by a student who is now charged with attempted murder and and attempted sexual assault. We all want our kids to feel safe in the classroom. Teachers want to be able to do their jobs without worrying about fights or disruptions, and nobody wants to worry that their son or daughter is being targeted or profiled by school police. So we're asking you, what should be done, or what are your concerns? Clark County School District's police chief is Henry Blackeye, and he's led the department since last spring, but he's been with the school district for two decades. Chief Blackeye, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You've had an interesting year um, as chief. You, you basically started when there was that attack on that, that uh, female teacher. Um, you had a lot of incidents last year, uh, parents uh, attacking students. I think there might have been three incidents, parents driving their cars into, you know, trying to get vengeance on students on behalf of their child. Now you have this incident between one of your officers and the student. How are you feeling in general? I guess enjoying the struggle. Because I know I'm going to look back and see how we came out, and I know there's going to be improvement um, if there needs to be um, later on down the line. So just getting through what we need to get through um, best we can. Yeah. All right. Um, if, if you had to – if I were going to ask you to define the mission of the school police department, in a perfect world, what should they be doing? Um, just like our mission states, to provide a safe and secure learning environment, which is conducive to education. Okay. And now I want to turn to that, that student, the incident at Durango. I'm not going to ask you specific questions about it because, uh, you know, I, I'm sure you're not going to be able to talk about some of the legal aspects of it. Uh, Superintendent Jesus Jara, though, is calling for a review of the department's use of force policies. Uh, what, what can you share about what the policy is now? Like, how are officers trained when it comes to use of force? Well, it's all based on the case 1989 Supreme Court decision, Graham versus Connor. Um, and it and basically surrounds the objective reasonableness standard that officers um, have as a, as, a, as a guide when um, performing their duties, when um, confronted with resistance um, and there's a three-pronged test. It's 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 really comes down to the reasonableness of of the of the use of force, um, and it's judged by the perspective of a reasonable officer um, on the scene, rather than you know the hindsight twenty twenty. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, there's a a three-pronged test that goes along with that. The, it's the severity of the crime, it's the immediacy of the threat, um, be it the uh, to the officer to the um, uh, other subjects or or anything else, and and whether that sub, sub subject was actually actively resisting the officer at the time um, to evade arrest or by flight. So um, that's that's pretty much it, okay. as simply as I could put it. And uh, and I, I know the the interest in the community of wanting to know, or seeing that video clip, and then making a, a quick judgment on you know this is right and this is wrong in my eyes. Well. Um, 
they're looking at it with untrained eyes. Ultimately, the police work hasn't changed. Ultimately, the our rules of contact haven't changed. You know, they've added in uh, um, training on de-escalation, which was for the most part already present prior to the um, the call for that type of reform. Um, you know, the duty to intervene that was also present. Um, I've been a cop for 30 years and all of those things were, were part of police training. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you know, from certain incidents, it, there was a call for, you know, let's, let's change how police perform their duties. But ultimately, the, the decision to use force um, is based on that officer's um, perception of what's occurring at the time based on um, the, the tenseness of the situation, the uh, – uh, uncertainty of what's going to be happening in the future um, from a split second and how things are rapidly evolving. Um, it's it's the totality of everything that they're confronted with right now that um, Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith aren't really thinking about in their normal course of life, maybe ever. And, and officers are put in those situations almost on a daily basis to make those determinations on how best to resolve that incident with the, with the necessary or reasonable amount of force um, uh, to bring a, sub, uh, a situation subject under, under control. Um, and, and I think the, the change is the, is the amount of cameras out there. You know, we wear our own and Everyone has a phone, and everyone's filming everything for content so they can show that they were there. Or, Do you think or, that's a good thing? Um, it's good and bad. Uh, I think we can all realize the bad. Uh, we all know the bad. Um, I know as police officers, we, we understand what the bad could be, is you know a, a video coming out, not showing the whole story, and then um, the public like uh, just making a determination based on that and then setting their feet in the sta- sand and, and not wanting to move it and then um, causing others to to accept that that perception and you know take action on it without knowing all of the facts it's it's that's the difficult part and I don't think uh, law enforcement's prepared um, as well as we can for that type of response yeah. there there's other things that I, I think we could we could do to help. Um, it's it's always difficult when you're in a, a large town like Las Vegas, and we have a, a lot of law enforcement agencies here. And when something happens with one law enforcement agency, it's 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 kind of isolated. It's funny. It's kind of isolated that law enforcement agency, and they have to deal with it. Um, we're not. What would help, honestly, and, and I don't think this would ever happen, mm-hmm. but uh, that law enforcement agency now has to build the trust up of the community to show, hey, this is how we've always done our, our job. This is, this is us. Uh, we're not uh, here to uh, uh, you know, violate anybody's rights that they have under the Constitution, and uh, we perform our duties conscious of everyone's rights, and uh, we care. Um, every officer I know cares. They they do it every day. It's almost an impossible job, and I admire all of them for uh, the the things that they're confronted with on a daily basis and the perception of the community um, 
good or bad for whatever they're seeing or or commenting on or giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down on on social media. It's kind of like we have all of this technology now, but it's 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 taken us back to gladiator times where you know the crowd sees something and you know the Caesar gets up there and thumbs up thumbs down and the person dies. I mean, you know, we're we have laws to protect, you know, due process, things like that. We have a court system, and and these things play out in in that fashion. That's what uh, this country was built on a, a, a system, and um, it's not a system based on social media or or public perception. And um, for the criminal justice system to actually work properly, it can't be influenced by that. But it's so powerful, it seems, that there's a ton of influence and pressure based on a perception of, of something that may have occurred or may not have occurred at all. And now judgments are made, people are villainized, um, careers are, 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 are hurt. And when all said and done, um, employees come back to work um, because some, some jurisdictions, I'm not saying anything here, but across the country, we've all seen those types of incidents where they want somebody fired for, for something that they did. A year later, that person may have been fired, but they get their job right back, and there's no coverage on that. There's, there's nothing showing that this swift and, and um, um, you know, immediate response to, to the public outcry um, ultimately resulted through the systems that are in place that it wasn't what occurred. It wasn't necessary, and, and there's nothing on that, on that end. There's, there's, and that, that's what's difficult about, um, you know, these situations that are happening right now and, and how to deal with that. And there's a lot of pressure. So I, say, I would say you asked me earlier, how am I doing or yeah. how's it going? I said there's a, there is a lot of pressure that comes along with it. But ultimately, I, I know I trust the, the criminal justice system. I, cr- I trust the ju- uh, uh, due process rights of all individuals that we all have, we all share, um, you know, People have the right not to have, uh, you know, employee um, records or um, discipline if, 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 if it comes be a public record. It's, it's not. It's the same with our, our kids. You know, we, we deal a lot primarily with juvenile crime and that's not publicized. Let me let me ask this. Uh, really well stated. Uh, a, a lot of people feel this way. Uh, similar sentiments have been expressed over over the years. The power of video, though, cannot be understated, and you really made that clear. Um, all people saw was a bystander's video. Your police officers have body cams. Have you thought about releasing that to sort of let the story be told that way? Well, that's the thing. It's it's you know giving up rights of folks, just not uh, our employees, but uh, but citizens. When you know they commit a crime, it's not it's not open to the the public to make their judgment. Like like you know like I gave that you know, reference of of the gladiator arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's just not, um, especially our juveniles. So okay, yeah, interesting. Again, I am talking to Chief Henry Blackeye. He is the chief of the Clark County School District's police department. And uh, we're talking about school safety. It has been a major issue in the Clark County School District for really three years. Since the start of the pandemic, it really, uh, a lot of people out there know some of the 
really wild incidents that have happened. Uh, people trying to drive their cars <clears throat> into students and guns being confiscated in schools. A lot of interesting stuff. A lot of scary stuff. A teacher being attacked about a year ago and the student being charged with attempted murder, attempted sexual assault. And joining us now is Sherry from Las Vegas. Welcome to the program. Good morning, everyone. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I, I just, I understand that uh, people don't like to to watch videos of this, but I honestly think that part of the problem is the fact that you are not engaging enough with the community to help us appreciate your job and feel safe and to talk to you about issues. In particular, I believe that when a doctor does something wrong, he gets sued for malpractice. When an, a lawyer does something wrong, he gets sued. When a police officer does something wrong, he's protected by his badge. And this right there shows to the community that you're special, that you do not deal with, uh, with the issues we have to deal with the same way. And that protection is an, a little bit insulting because uh, a lot of women, a lot of minorities will not feel confident enough to reach out to you just because if they're mistreated, your protection from the badge says it doesn't matter. Yeah, very rare, Sherry. Uh, that is a really interesting point. Uh, Chief Henry Blackeye. Well, yeah, I know there's been, um, I think it was the last legislative session, uh, not this one. Um, it might have been the one before that, but... You know, with the with the reform, there was uh, discussion or um, bills put forward regarding qualified immunity. That's what really what we're really talking about. Um, you know, who was going to go out there? Who's going to go out there and stop um, bad people from doing bad things? And we need good people to actually do that. And when this country was founded, they decided that that was necessary. But how's how those pe- good people? are going to protect, going to be protected and protecting all of us from the bad. And that's where qualified immunity comes into play. We're given that because we're our job, our badge, and that's right, that is a protection, and we're protected by that. We're protected because we accept that responsibility to see something bad or see someone bad and address it. There's no other position, um, there's no other job here in the United States that, that carries that type of responsibility. And I think, you know, that's what's forgotten. You know, who's going to do that without protection? Nobody. I wouldn't do it. I would not break up a fight. I would not, um, you know, stop a, a, you know, um, something bad from happening without some type of protection. And that's what we're paid for. We're paid to be put into these situations that nobody else is going to respond to and without any protections against the individual for that act, there's no there's no reason for police. And we'd have to have military now. We'd you know the military would be protected by being a soldier and uh, coming in and solving the problems of the community. But that's that's primarily what what we're talking about when um, you know folks look at this and say that's bad. Well, that person should be held accountable for it. Well, that person wears a badge, they're protected by qualified immunity um, to get in there to intervene, to stop what's going on um, and, you know, return things to some type of safe environment as best they can. Yeah, she also made a, a really good point about 
uh, communicating with with the community. Uh, you're here yeah. now. Um, obviously, we would love to have you in, you know, uh, a quarterly basis or, or every couple of months to talk about issues. But do you, you recognize the, the power and the importance of these sort of regular discussions, opening the phones, for instance, like we're doing today with the community for, so they can ask you these direct questions? Oh, absolutely. I think it's important. I, I think you know, the uh, one of the biggest issues that, that law enforcement deals with is, is just that, the not understanding um, the whole basis for uh, police officers in the United States and how it was formed. You know, that they, they, look, at, they look at something what happened and they just judge that, that officer as being just a regular citizen. Now that citizen should be sued or imprisoned or, or what have you for taking action in a violent, uncertain, um, difficult situation that no one else would do. Everyone else is filming. They're, they're filming it all instead of intervening. And the police are called in to actually stop what's going on if okay. it's violating the law. Uh, again, that's uh, Henry Blackeye. He's chief of the Clark County School District Police Department. Uh, Malisha from Las Vegas, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much for having me. How yeah, are you today? Really good. Go ahead. Good. Good. So I want to know, what are you guys actually doing um, in, in the school districts and the community? Because they need to have more people who reflect that class body and talk to them so they both can, both can talk to each other on both sides to tell their situations or their uh, perspective and how are they asking these students how can we help you how can we relate to one another if there are a bunch of Caucasian police policing people of melanation uh, or richly melanated or African Americans um, then you already have a situation where people are judged based on their skin color and they are treated a certain way. So how, how are you going to talk to these people to get a trust with you and wh what are you doing to service them and how they can service you to where it's a collaboration and it's not posing like a civil war with our children? Chief Blacker. All right, well, um, our, our bread and butter are, is, is our officers in the schools um, on a daily basis. That's what they're doing. Um, their mentors, their coaches, their counselors, their, um, you know, guides for law enforcement, all of those types of things. Um, we've been doing that for 35 years, and we have wonderful examples of officers um, having lifelong connections with students. Um, just from that contact every day. The, uh, I've noticed something in the 20 years I've been here is I, I was a campus officer and I, I did those same things. I talked with the students, I talked with their families um, about issues uh, at my school and all the officers do the same thing. Um, so we do have that, that interaction and that communication. It's, it's, it's ongoing. Our, um, what's unique about school police, the specialized police department, our officers are there with the people that we serve each and every day. We're not hidden. We're out there. We, they can, they interact with our officers. We see our, our, our population every day. 
Uh, we work with staff, and it's a collaborative effort to uh, approach incidents that are happening in the school. And our officers are part of that collaborative approach. Um, the we can do better. We're not perfect. Uh, as a chief, I've been out in the community. I've been, you know, made myself available. Um, the communication when things are going on is when things every everything's going fine. Nobody cares. Nobody really cares about it. Um, they care when something happens, and then they want to know what we're doing, what our training is, and. And, and all those types of things. And it's, it's still the same. The only addition is, is we've added an, uh, an educational program um, this past two years. I've been trying to get uh, our officers to get into our schools and start teaching um, our young people um, things like, like maybe you and I experienced through DARE or mm-hmm. GREAT or some other program um, that brings uh, law enforcement to in front of our kids. Um, and it's just so they can see, for one, I think the benefit of all of those are to show that officers are not there just when things are going bad and they're not the, the ones that are taking mom or dad to jail or, um, you know, all of those violent things that you may see. And officers are now standing in front of our children, talking to them about life. They learn about the officer. They learn about things that um, or approaches to uh, – conflict that they may experience in their life and other ways to solve that other than than violence. And uh, that's one thing that we're also doing um, this year. And that's it's gotten a lot of, and it starts at kindergarten, honestly. We have a, a, what we call Rocket Rules, um, and that's a program. We have a, um, a virtual dog that, that the officer um, talks to, and it talks back to the officer, and it talks, also talks to the children. And it talks about simple things like crossing the street. Mm-hmm. Um, calling 911, things like that. It's a little half-hour program that, that we've been going around to schools, first grade, second grade, things like that. Um, and just getting uh, our officers out there when they're not called to uh, bring a situation under control. So what else are they doing? That's what they're doing. Um, as a department, I've been attending uh, certain meetings uh, throughout town and uh, one of them I, I really liked, and it was a, a multicultural um, group that that uh, are basically as part of a, of the department. And I wanted to form one the last couple of years, but I'm thinking, well, there's no interest in this. They just want the community just wants to us to mm. respond to violence and um, you know secure our schools better. There's no interest on what what our police department actually does, who we are and how we function. Have you changed your opinion about that? We changed it. So uh, we will be having uh, those conversations to uh, meet with all the community, all different groups in the community, um, teach them about what we do, um, if they're interested, um, how we respond to um, certain things, calls for service, um, safety of our children, some of the programs that we're running. And also address issues and, and hot topics, uh, have, have candid conversations about those in a collaborative approach. And that's, that's I, I appreciate the, the caller saying that. That's, that's exactly the, the, what we're, want, we're, we're wanting to get started, and that collaborative approach needs to happen. Because um, it needs to happen when things aren't bad. Right. And uh, again, this is Henry Blackeye. He's the chief of the Clark County School District Police Department. We're talking about violence in our schools. We're not talking about any particular incidents. We're just, uh, in general, the violence in the school district, uh, we've seen it in the newspapers, we've seen it in videos, 
has jumped in the last few years. The the pandemic, the isolation and the changes in people's lives seems to have, have uh, played a big part in that. I also want to bring in Marie Nysis. She's president of the Clark County Education Association, which is the teachers union. Marie, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. Uh, Marie, I wonder how teachers feel about school police in general. Um, ha- have their opinions changed over the years? I mean, is it constant? Uh, give me a give me a sense of how teachers feel. Well, educators' opinions land on both sides of the argument, and the issue isn't going to be solved simply by having more or fewer police officers on our campus. The bottom line is we need to create a culture of deterrence at our schools and overhaul our policies for dealing with violence and, and violent student behavior. Our educators are frustrated with CCSD lack, CCSD's lack of progressive discipline policies, not only school-wide, but also in our classrooms. And so for us, it, our position is every classroom, every bus, every campus needs to be safe. Our students, our educators, and our support for professionals deserve to be and feel safe at school. You, you mentioned a lack of progressive discipline. Could you describe how it is now and how you'd like to see it? Educators feel like their hands are tied. They feel like nothing is being done. There are no consequences for our most severe uh, disruptive students. And every time a teacher has to stop and, and deal with that type of behavior, there's learning loss that occurs. There's minutes that are being lost in the day. And teachers are chasing minutes every day because we understand the importance of, of trying to catch these students up. And so every time that there's, there's nothing in place and a teacher is having to deal with it on their own, that creates a problem. We, the bottom line is we need to have a policy of zero tolerance when it comes to issues such as weapons on campus for violent behavior, whether it's from students, school police, or anyone else. And uh, we, you know, we, we support students having an alternative placement for violent or habitual disruptive students. But we also believe that every student is entitled to an education, and, and so we want to support assigning those students a caseworker to monitor their progress. Yeah, and Governor Joe Lombardo talked about improving school safety. He specifically talked about repealing uh, the state's public school restorative justice law that was passed in 2019. What's the What are the union's thoughts on that law? Well, during this legislative session, we are laser focused on address, addressing school safety in Carson City. And we're working with the governor, with the Democratic leadership and with lawmakers on both sides of the aisle to make sure that our schools are safe. This is a top priority for everyone. And so we understand something needs to be done. You know, we want accountability from whether it's a classroom teacher to principals, central administration governance. And then, of course, our school police should also be held to the highest standards of accountability. We all need to figure out how to make these schools safe because our students are not learning when they're focused on whether or not they're going to be safe in each and every, each and every day in their classrooms. That, that law was drafted in an effort to keep kids out of the so-called school-to-prison pipeline. Uh, for instance, expelling them, you know, uh, the argument goes, would only help ensure that they're going to head down a darker path. So is there a way to get what, what you want while also keeping part of that in place? You know, I think it takes, again, you know, working with, with legislators and the governor to ensure that we can put those place, things in place. We have to have a robust wraparound services for all of our students. We need more school counselors, psychologists, social workers, and behavioral specialists to ensure all our students are getting the support they need to be successful. So we understand we're not promoting that, that there isn't an alternative placement for students or that students can't come back into their regular setting, but they cannot do that without support systems in place. Our kids are struggling. They don't understand how to handle their, their very emotional 
when they lash out and they don't understand the consequences. So we need to make sure that we, we provide those services for them. But we also need to empower educators to remove violent and disruptive students from their classrooms and make the necessary interventions to prevent violence in our mm-hmm. classes before it begins. Because the uptick in, in weapons that have been found on our campuses, to me, the scary thought, it's not uh, if a, a school shooting will happen, but when. And what are we going to do to prevent that from happening? Yeah, yeah good points. West from, actually, the ACLU of Nevada. West, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. Go ahead, West. Um, I'm super interested in this discussion we're having today. I really feel like the rhetoric around school safety is incredibly problematic. I don't think we're great at the state at grappling with the fact that we're among the top states in the nation in terms of the amount of students that are arrested in school. We're a huge driver of the school to prison pipeline down here in Clark County specifically. Nevada's sixth in the nation for the amount of students arrested in school. And we have so many students going to schools with really robust police presences, but hardly any counselors, social workers, anything like that. So I guess my question, just in general for the community or if Chief Black, I would love to weigh in. I would just love to know what can we do to help students that doesn't involve involvement with the criminal legal system? Please, Chief uh, Henry Black. That's a, that's a great question. I appreciate that. Uh, when I started 20 years ago, we um, I was put in a school, trained as a police officer, obviously, and, um, you know, provided some instruction on that type of environment, and I absolutely loved it. Um, there wasn't a, a specific uh, method to uh, apply discretion. We just knew we did it, and we just performed it. So if there was a fight, if there was a situation involving a juvenile for these minor-level crimes, um, nothing was really done other than me talking to that student, um, checking in with that student throughout the throughout the school year, possibly talking to the parents, um, working with the school so the school would know about it as well and know that resolution to that particular incident. So we've always done that as a department. That's that's what we typically do. We've never been good at actually documenting it. Um, the, you know, the reform or the restorative justice practices, I think five years ago, maybe six, is when um, that hit Las Vegas, I guess you would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, us being school police and knowing what we've done in the past, okay, well, here's what we do. What's the best practice? And what, what how can we um, apply what we've always done, always done, um, and document it? So we call ours the uh, the alternatives to arrest program. And this is separate from the school justice partnership with the, the district, the school board of trustees have entered in an MOU with juvenile justice. Um, so in the five years from this program, we have an 81% decrease in our submittals of our juveniles for, uh, arrests and citations and some people are going to say oh yeah and that's why you're seeing a spike in in violence right i hear the i hear the i hear that as well um the so that 81 i didn't know that i didn't know it was that high i, I was actually sent it uh, um i think in january or december and i was like wow that's a that's a a huge decrease in five years 81 percent um, decrease in submittals for arrests and and, and citations um <laughs> excuse me the harbor uh, is, is part of that. So there, it's, it's, it's not that we just don't do anything. Um, there's harbor submittals. So a citation for a juvenile could be issued um, and it would be diverted over to the harbor. So those, 
those incidents that the officer felt, well, I can't resolve with mentoring or counseling and the school has no services to help provide the student. There's something else needs to be done based on the level of a crime or, or um, the situation surrounding it. So the officer, uh, the officer's in, in, incident is now referred automatically to the harbor to review uh, for lower level misdemeanors and things like that. So that also adds to the decrease. And it's not by the nature of the officer just not citing or arresting somebody. It's just the program itself automatically diverts that in. So, you know, our officers do take action on all of these. They're crimes. They're sworn to, you know, respond and and provide their service. Uh, It's just and I hear that argument as well. I mean, we our eternal alternatives to arrest program for our busiest year in the history of our department, which was the year coming back from the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Um, we logged 2,700. And it was 27, 2,700 and some odd um, number of, of diversions. And we include social workers. We have three social workers on staff now that are part of that diversion. So if an officer and mentoring or counseling are working with the parent and the school feel that they need uh, intervention of a social worker, that social worker get involved. So, so West, uh, again, uh, from the ACLU, uh, Chief Henry Blackeye is basically saying that they have really, you know, tried to use restorative justice and they've, they've increased the numbers. Um, I, I'm just kind of, kind of curious about your response, given that Marie Nysis, uh, the teachers union at the same time is saying th- safety in the schools is going to be is their number one focus in the legislative session this year yeah absolutely i mean at the ACLU nevada we believe in safe and respectful learning environments for students but i have to call bs on this notion that restorative justice practices have ever been fully implemented and in the clark county school district we're still dealing with a system where black students are twice as likely to be arrested as white students Native American students more than three times, students with disabilities four times as likely. It's really problematic when we're talking about, too, a a state education system where we have a social worker to student ratio of 8,730 students for every one social worker. Like, I'm sorry, but three social workers for the Clark County School District, fifth largest school district in the nation. It's not enough. It's not enough. And there's so many other factors affecting behavior in schools. I just feel like this rhetoric around, you know, repealing and moving away from restorative justice is just really problematic. I I have somebody here who is probably going to agree with you, at least on part of the fact that our school districts do not have enough social workers, psychologists, and the like. Uh, Bob Weirs is Director of Psychological Services for the school district. Bob, welcome to the program. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, Is he right? In terms of needing more yes. specialists, yeah. absolutely. From I am somewhat biased. I'm the director for psychological services, so I have oversight responsibilities for school psychologists, but we do a lot of collaborative work with social workers, counselors, school nurses, and such. Um, State of Nevada has actually identified uh, non-binding ratios for supporting students, and our ratios are significantly above that. Do, do you think um, issues like violence in our schools and the number of incidents that police deal with, do you think that would be, they would decline if you had more psychologists? And, and if so, why? How, how would that work? 
Um, I can give one example along these lines. I think school police officers, we rely heavily. They're our partners in relation to aggressive and violent behavior. Uh, but we also have a team of, group, uh, of folks, specialists, including psychologists, social workers, counselors, nurses, who help intervene with kids exhibiting suicide ideation to the extent that we're well-organized, we're trained, and we can uh, intervene efficiently. We're not pulling school police officers into that. They have more time and attention to deal with uh, more of their standard safety issues. So yes, I think not only from an intervention side, I would also emphasize the fact that to the extent that we bring in additional specialists, we can move away from crisis scenarios and bringing down interventions to more at-risk kids bringing back uh, increased awareness for all students relative to suicide ideation, safety, mm -hmm. social interaction patterns, all those things. So as long as we're stuck, so to speak, in crisis intervention mode, one student at a time, we're missing opportunities to address kids earlier on when they're exhibiting uh, at-risk nature relative to academics, behavior, mental health. You're making some really good points here. Um, I have so many questions it leads to. I'm wondering if your pleas are being heard. But I want to get into one thing. Uh, during the pandemic, the isolation and the, the changes in the way schools were conducted really had an impact on everybody, uh, from police sure. to teachers to students. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about where you see kids, now that we've basically kind of been out of the pandemic for about a year, are, are they back mentally to what I'll, I'll just put in quotation marks as normal, or are, is there still a lot of uh, leftover mental uh, anguish or impact? Yeah. I'm going to broaden my response a little bit Sure, uh, because psychologists like to remind uh, folks about the all-around development of kids, academics, behavior, social interactions, mental health. So um, we're still very much in a baseline phase, reestablishing the norm in relation to our schools coming off the pandemic, but we see indicators that there's broad-based impact across a number of performance domains. Uh, listening to a board presentation earlier this year where we've made gains on group-administered standardized tests, but we're not back to pre-pandemic uh, standards. Uh, listening to another board presentation, Board of School Trustees earlier this year about we're having uh, an uptick on attendance problems, so in more internalized kind of concerns relative to behavior. Uh, increases in calls to our specialized crisis response team, where teachers and school administrators are asking for more assistance with problem solving and solutions relative to student behavior management. Uh, more increases on anxiety, feeling alone, helpless, maybe even depression. Um, so we're seeing all that. We're also seeing indicators relative to overall learning. Um, we're still very much in the 22-23 school year, uh, but I'm anticipating at the end of the year we're going to see an increase in referrals for special education, indicating uh, students that have had trouble making gains. Um, and it, within special education, maybe even more restrictive placements and uptick in those kids who need more intensive types of supports. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, we are taking your calls, and you can email us as well. And I want to welcome Diane from Henderson. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. I was a first-year teacher. And I just want to say, when I went to high school, I was floored. Um, high school, the other 
teachers don't expect many parents to come uh, at the parent conferences. And, you know, they were right. There was a handful of parents that came, and I had like over 120 kids with all my classes. Um, I really think with the situation going now, I think maybe there should be a beginning of the year mandatory thing where they um, ask parents to come in and... Okay, you're kind of breaking up a little bit there, Diane. Um, basically, she I, I think she's saying more parental involvement. And sure. um, that really does seem to be a key. But but from, uh, from a psychologist's point of view, how important is that? It's absolutely important. Uh, whether our procedures are for crisis intervention relative to um, suicide ideation, or you're talking about an at-risk student for academics and behavior, our procedures call for early engagement of the parents. So we want them engaged. We want them actively participating. For identified kids with disabilities, parents are at the heart of the problem solving, developing the plan, and supporting the services, um, special education related services provided to people. So. I say amen to that. I think the earlier and more involved that we can have collaboration between families and school districts to help solve and support students, the better off we are. Do you have enough people, let's just say parents listening to this right now, a whole bunch of them decide they want to do that. Do you have enough people to interact even with the, the amount of parents that could be flooding the schools saying, yeah, we heard Bob Weir is talking. We want to create some kind of plan for our student. We want to have more communication. Yeah, there are limits to what we can provide. You cannot address 100% of our kids one student at a time. It's just not feasible. Uh, we actually follow a model, a framework within Clark County School District. We're trying to uh, refer to as multi-tiered systems of support. And what that is is continual focus, renewed focus on meeting the needs of as many kids as possible as we can at the classroom level. That takes pressure off of our resources for at-risk kids and for our response in crisis situations. So, yes, there's a pressure on the system. How do we go about um, providing additional support to teachers within the classroom environment so that we're more, meeting more of their needs across academic behavior and mental health needs? Uh, thank you so much for that call, uh, Diane. And joining us now is Elizabeth from Las Vegas. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Joe. Thank you much, so much for having this discussion. And I'm really glad that Dr. Weirs was here and the ACLU weighed in. Um, and I just wanted to say I taught middle school in Clark County um, about 15 years ago. And, I, you know, I've seen all of these things in the classroom, and I know that um, some of the behavior issues have definitely gotten worse. Um, but I wanted to address something that Chief Black Eye said, and you know he's really great. You're really great, Chief Black Eye, at your communication. I know that's why you have this job. But what I have seen is that there is an issue in police culture, um, and the way that police officers probably do to what they see on their job on a daily basis, they divide the world into good people and bad people. And he even stated, you know, that the police are the good people and they're trying to protect everybody else from the bad people. But everyone is just a person that either makes good choices or bad choices. And when we talk about parental involvement and we talk about needing more um, social workers in the schools, that is very true because we have to be able to talk to students and get at their level and teach them how to make good choices. And if officers are interacting with students like they did at Durango and are screaming profanities at students and are not giving them respect, that is not teaching them how to make good choices. That's a good point. And I, um, 
Everybody in this uh, here right now is nodding, uh, Elizabeth, to what you just said, and um, I, I think what you said is very important. And I want to I want to try to get to uh, at least uh, one more call and one more question before we go. We're running out of time, and um, actually I want to go to Marie Nysis. Marie, uh, you know, we talked uh, about the mental health of students. I, I wonder what you're seeing in teachers now that we've been, we're about a year out of the pandemic. I mean, how are they doing? Well, clearly they're overwhelmed. Uh, you know, they're stressed about making sure that they provide the best instruction for our students, while at the same time, safety has now become a major focus for all educators. And, you know, based on the, all the, everyone else that was speaking, it sounds like we're all in agreement that we need more social workers, school psychologists, counselors in our schools. And those are the wraparound services we're talking about. And we're leading that conversation right now in Carson City. And we have three more months to get this done, and that's exactly what we intend to do. We need to figure out how we keep our educators here, you know, to make sure that we can continue to provide the best education for all of our students. And uh, that's the approach that we're taking. All right. Um, and we have time for one more call. Uh, it's got to be quick. we got about a minute and a half left. Camilla from Las Vegas, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much. My name is Camilla Bywaters. I'm the president of the Las Vegas Alliance of Black School Educators. And uh, one thing that I think is important for us to remember is um, the traumatic experiences that black communities have in regards to um, relations with uh, black people and the police. And historically, black bodies have been the source of violence. So I think that it is important to really consider that and think about that as we engage with, um, I mean, we do have a disproportionate number of um, police officers who do not really look like the communities they serve. So really thinking about how we're going to engage our officers with the community so that we can begin to break down those barriers and remove some of those stereotypes and the violence that black communities have suffered. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Camilla, for that point. Uh, re really, that's a really great point. And I want to thank you and I want to thank all the people who called in. We could not get to some of your calls. I'm sorry for that. Uh, Chief Henry Black Eye, can I uh, get a guarantee from you? You're going to come back to us uh, within a few months. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's that's terrific to hear. Also here with Bob Weirs. He's the Director of Psychological Services for the Clark County School District. And Marie Nysis, President of the Clark County Education Association, the Teachers Union. And um, again, thanks to everybody who called. Uh, really, you made some really, really great points. And